Hey listeners, I'm Pastor Brian Dwyer, and you're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast on a Tuesday. Pastor Ross Anderson joins me for today's topic. And remember, you can find resources to have this conversation with your family, small group, or mentor. Find it all at PursueGod.org. Well, Ross, today I'm pumped. I'm excited because we're starting a six-week series that we've been waiting to do for several months now. I've just always felt like our listeners would love a series on Calvinism versus Arminianism, and we're going to start on that today. Now, this is one of the most heated theological debates over the last 500 years. Churches have split over this. I've heard of pastors that go off to a conference as an Arminian and come back as a Calvinist, and the church splits because of it. So we're going to get into all this, but before we even get into the this you know this first introductory lesson maybe you should just answer the question why is this why is this whole thing such a big heated debate why do people get all worked up about this well just in a nutshell and we'll go into detail about this but in a nutshell it has to do with the nature of salvation and what's the what's god's work and what's the human responsibility in salvation now both sides of the issue would would agree with many biblical principles that were saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Jesus Christ alone. So neither side is what you might call a heretical about this. So uh, although some people might, you know, disagree about that, but (laughs) the point is that it's about then what's the human part and what's God's part? How much of it is God's sovereignty and how much of the human will is actually able to make choices What's the interplay between those factors in salvation? And uh, it becomes heated because it's it's fundamental arguments about the nature of uh, human response to God and how God works and how we work. And so it, it affects a lot of things. Okay, so Ross, probably some people listening are, if, if they don't even know these words, if they've never heard these words before... That's a. I'm just. I'm going to just at the outset say that's probably a good sign that they grew up in an Arminius tradition, because I think people who have grown up in a more of a Reformed or Calvinist tradition probably already know some of the stuff we're going to be talking about. So for our listeners who are a little bit like, I'm not really sure what we're even talking about. Your my bet. Am I right? You think Ross? My bet is you probably you probably grew up in a church that was a little bit more Arminius. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. So these are not issues that are defined necessarily. Uh, by, uh, by the Armenian camp. So, okay, so in this first episode, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about John Calvin, who was this guy. We're going to talk about Jacob Arminius, who was that guy. We're even going to sprinkle in a little bit of St. Augustine, because he, f- he figures into the whole debate as well. So we're going to do some history today, but we should probably start, Ross, with w- one of the acronyms that, that kind of defines this debate. It's the acronym TULIP. And it, it provides a framework for understanding the five points of Calvinism. And so we're gonna we're gonna review this real quick just by way of introduction. And then this is gonna be the framework for the rest of this series. So in the next lesson, we're gonna talk about the T. And then in lesson three, we're gonna talk about the U until we kind of cover all of these and and help our listeners approach this and really try to understand where this is coming from and what the biblical argument is for it on either side. So before we get into all that, Ross, is there like a clear, is there like, is one side clearly wrong when we look at scripture and one side is clearly right when we, when we look at, at scripture? 
Well, the reason why it's such a divided issue and why there's so many people on both camps is that both sides are rooted in Scripture, but the, but there are issues where the Bible maybe is not as clear or where you can choose, say, maybe a biblical theme or a biblical emphasis, and ha- whichever emphasis that you choose, then you're going to end up with a certain conclusion. So not to say that the Bible is contradictory, but the Bible does hold certain truths in tension. And so depending on how you resolve that tension, um, you're going to end up in as a Calvinist or as an Arminian in your perspective on these things. And I can just hear the Calvinists cringing when you say, well, no, both sides have scripture that support it. Because a hardcore Calvinist would say, no, they don't. And I would guess that a hardcore Arminian would say the same thing. And so we're going to try to be as gracious as we can as we approach this. And we're going to let you guys who are listening, you can fight it out with your small group or your mentor and have some fun with this. But we're going to really just try to approach this thing as kind of as middle of the road as we can to try to help people understand both sides. But Ross, let's let's jump in just real quick before we get into some history of Calvin and Arminius. Let's talk about TULIP. So the T in TULIP stands for total depravity. So what is that all about when a Calvinist says that they believe in that? Well, the idea of total depravity has to do with what is the the human nature apart from Christ. Uh, for the unsaved or unregenerate person, what is their nature? And both sides will agree that the, the human beings are lost apart from Jesus' work, and that and that they can, we cannot save ourselves. But the the Calvinists will take the idea of depravity and say, no, this affects every single part of your being. It affects your mind, your emotions, your will, your actions, your attitudes, choices that you make, that you're, we're completely lost in our sins to the point where a human being can do no good and can never choose to do something that honors God without the work of God at work in their life. And so the idea of total depravity, everybody believes in depravity because the Bible teaches it. The idea, the question is, what is the extent of that human depravity? And as we'll see later, what are its consequences in terms of a person's ability to be saved? So basically, this is the starting point for a Calvinist to say, a, a, an individual cannot on their own make a decision to trust Jesus for salvation. Whereas an Ar- Arminian would say, no, I think, I think someone does have the ability to make a decision for Jesus. So we can see why this is sort of the first point of, of contention in between these two camps. And we'll talk more about this in, week, in next week, week number two in the series. I want to read a scripture to go with this, Ross, Romans 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. So again, in our, a, in a, a Calvinist would read that and say, I believe that, and here's what that means. In my theology, our, our many would read that and say, it's scripture, I believe that too, but here's what that means, and we'll dive into that a little bit more next week. Okay, so T is total depravity, and the U in the acronym stands for unconditional election. And there's the election word. This is the one that gets people a little bit fired up. So talk about that. Election simply means choosing. Like if I if there's a a bit a, a political election, I get to choose which candidate I want. And so the idea of election means God is the one who chooses. Or wait, are people the ones who choose? Does God choose people, or do people choose God? And so that's the question. But unconditional election 
means the idea is that God chooses people to come to faith, to be Christians, based on nothing about them, because they're totally depraved. There can be nothing in a person that that says God's going to choose me for any merit or any any anything that I do or whatever. And so Arminians would say that election, God still chooses, but it's God's choice is based on his foreknowledge, that God understands that people in the future, which people will respond to the gospel, and which people will become saved, and so God chooses those people. Or, I've heard it framed, that God chooses whole groups, like God chose Israel to belong to him. And so this idea of election then, the, uh, the, the you in Tulip says election is not based on any kind of foreseen faith. And it's not based certainly on, not on anything that anybody does to, to have merit. And so it's simply based on God's will, God's choice. And again, um, Arminians, both sides would agree, there's no merit in, in human beings. There's no, we can't be worthy of God choosing us. But the question is, does God choose based on his will alone or based on his foreknowledge of, of, of our outcome? And so this is where the word, I don't think you said it yet, Ross, this is where the word predestination comes in, because the idea of the elect is, again, a Calvinist would say those people are predestined. In fact, in your, in your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles open, Romans 8, 20, verses 29 and 30, it says, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them, or some translations say he predestined them to become like his son. And Ephesians 1 uses the word, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us or predestined us in Christ. So again, depending on the translation you're reading, maybe you have a word chosen or a word predestined. And you're, you're, if you've ever thought, I wonder what that means, I wonder what that word means, that's, that's this debate. As a Calvinist would say, Ross, like you said, a Calvinist would say, no, this was God's sovereign election. He, it has nothing to do with you, whereas a, a, an Arminian would, would say, well, no, he would probably frame it more in terms of God's foreknowledge rather than, rather than just what, it, what an Arminian would say is his arbitrary choice, and the Calvinists would probably get pretty fired up about that word. It was, who said it was arbitrary? <laughs> you know, uh, how, how dare you call God arbitrary? So that you could see this is where the debate comes in. In fact, some of our listeners might be, anytime, Ross, I've had this Comp talked about Calvinism with people who have never really studied Calvinism. I mean, to a person, they get super fired up about this um, because I, I think it strikes a nerve for people when you start thinking about predestination because it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Ross, for the uninitiated in this conversation, it just paints a picture of God that a lot of modern day Christians are uncomfortable with, right? Even though a lot of Christians out there are Calvinists. And it's true because there's this idea. So, for example, in in Islam, God is like it doesn't matter what cho- what choice you make. That's why the Islam will say Inshallah, like God wills. That's okay. Well, it's like it doesn't matter what choice I make. God has already decided everything. And, and the mm. Christian idea of of unconditional election, or the or the Calvinist idea of God's sovereignty, doesn't go that far because it takes seriously our choices. And so that's the that's the tension that is played out in this in this conversation. We believe that God is sovereign. The Bible teaches that. What that means is that God rules everything. God is king of the universe. We believe that God is sovereign, but we also believe that human choices matter, and we're held responsible for the choices that we make. And so how, what's the tension between those two? And so when we think of God's sovereignty as being 
totally a fatalism or like the idea that God somehow makes us robots, then yeah, that is that is an idea that Christians will recoil against. It's probably not what Calvinists are trying to say, but it can feel that way sometimes. Yeah, and again, I think just for you for the listeners who are feeling tension and anxiety and maybe even some other emotions as you're listening to this brief description, uh, just a fair warning, you're going to feel even more tension as you continue on in this series. And I would say, just let God's Word speak for itself. You know, let, I, I think for all of us, we shouldn't come to God's Word and say, I'm, I'm going to open up the Bible to prove my point. And I think what you should do, all of us, on whatever side of the debate, is you should open up the Bible and say, God, I want you to prove your point. I want you to reveal your Word to me. And, and if I'm, you know, if I'm viewing something if my perspective on theology on any particular issue needs to be adjusted, I want to be, I want to have that heart of teachability toward that. And I think that's what I would challenge all of our listeners to do is, is yeah, I mean, go ahead and get fired up about it, but, but let God's word speak for itself and be willing to even adjust if, if at the end of the series you end up making an adjustment, like be willing to do that. Again, I think this is not a die for issue. I think there are Cal- a Calvinist is truly saved and an Arminian is truly saved. I think both can be, well, I mean, elect. I guess you could say if we're gonna, if we're going to use if we're going to. In fact, Ross, is it true to say that you could be part if Calvinists are right? Could you be part of the elect and not believe in the elect? Oh, totally, because yeah. God's election is unconditional. It's not yeah. conditioned on whether you believe it or not, right? So. <laughs> that's right. That's good. Oh, that's good. All right. We'll, we'll get into that more in week three of the series. Okay, so we've talked about total depravity, the T, unconditional election, that's the U. The L, Ross, stands for limited atonement. And this, of course, is talking about Christ's death and the atonement, but what does this mean that it's limited? The idea of limited atonement means that it's talking about the effect of the death of Christ on the cross. Who is it for? Who did Jesus die for? The idea, uh, the Calvinist idea, is that Christ's death was only for the elect, that Christ died for the elect, for those that God chose in advance, but his atonement does not apply to people who are outside of that that group, people who uh, God did not choose, the ones who are lost or um, reprobate, as the word sometimes is used, so that because if Jesus died for the lost or people who are not elect, then his sacrifice is wasted on them. There, there's a gap between what his, his sacrifice only accomplished exactly what it needed to accomplish. And so the, the idea is that Jesus did not die for everybody. We, we often talk about how Jesus died for the whole world. And yet the idea for in Calvinism is that the, the atonement was perfectly, I guess, um, it accomplished what God intended it to accomplish, and there's no reason for Jesus to have died for people who will not ultimately be saved. Yeah, and I can hear the Arminian saying, wait a second, doesn't, isn't that, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world? Well, we'll talk about that in, in a few weeks when we cover limited atonement, because again, this is one that for an Arminian, it strikes them as odd or even maybe even strikes a nerve like to say how could you say that god that jesus didn't die for everybody but from a calvinist perspective as a math guy it makes sense in the context of their system of thought it makes sense if we're if we're really emphasizing the sovereignty of god and the elect and 
then yeah, if, if there is such a thing as the elect, I think it makes sense that there is such a thing. I'm not saying I'm not going to show my hand at all here. So I'm going to do, we're going to do our best, Ross, not to, not to try to reveal which side we lean on here. But I, I will say this, that as a math guy, it makes sense that, that this follows the idea of unconditional election. So we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. So the I, okay, so we got total depravity T, unconditional election U, limited atonement L, and the I stands for irresistible grace. And what's that about? Okay, this is an extension of the idea of God's sovereignty. That if God chose you, then then you then you you're not going to be able to resist his choice. His choice will be effective. That God God accomplishes what he wills to accomplish. And so if God if if God calls you to become a follower of Jesus, if you are one of the elect, then you would not want to resist that. You wouldn't be able to resist that. You would not want to resist that. That God's work is effectual. And so when God calls you, then at that moment he also regenerates you. So there's a work of a change, there's a change that God affects in each of us at the moment of regeneration, where that allows us to be able to uh, put our trust in Jesus and to respond to him. And so the work of the Holy Spirit gives this new heart. And so the idea of irresistible grace is that God will do, again, he will do what he intends to do. And if you're the elect, then you can't choose to be unelect. Yeah, it's kind of like the opposite of the, of the it's the negative side of the of the issue that we're talking about from a positive side, right? So if you're, a, if you're, you can't choose to be elect if you're unelect, I guess is what I'm saying is what we've kind of covered so far is you, it's not up to you, it's up to God. And so this is the other side of that, you know, that idea, which is you can't choose, you can't reject, you can't say no to God's election, just like you can't say yes to it. So it's the other, it, again, it makes sense in the system of Calvinism. And we'll talk about verses like John six thirty seven, where Jesus said, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. So again, a, a Calvinist would use a verse like that and say, see, look, that is talking about this irresistible grace. Like if you're chosen, you're in. You know, God has made the decision already for you, and you, A, can't resist it nor would you want to, I guess, is what they would say. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So that's irresistible grace. Before you go on to P, let me just mention now, I think we're going to show in the weeks that come, we're going to talk about these individually, but but hopefully today we can see, I think the, that our listeners would want to see how these are related to each other, how these are all connected. This kind of a, mm. it makes sense logically, like you said. For, it's internally consistent, because if total mm-hmm. depravity is reality... From the Calvinist perspective, then, um, then yeah, there's nothing we could do to choose because we don't have the we don't have an inclination toward God. We're and so and so mm-hmm. God has to regenerate us in order for us to be able to choose. He has to do some change in our very nature for us to be able to choose Him. And so if He does that, then yeah, we will mm-hmm. we will choose Him. And so this is why people can't. This is why, from a Calvinist point of view, people can't choose or unchoose because they just don't have the the capacity in their fallen, sinful nature. Now, the Arminian side says that the answer to that is that God's grace allows people 
to come to that place. So God works graciously in someone's life short of regeneration or prior to regeneration that allows them to overcome the effects of sin so that they can make a reasonable choice. That's called prevenient grace. And we'll talk about that um, later on. Yeah, so for you know, there's a lot of terms that we'll be in introducing in the weeks ahead so that people can really understand. Again, the idea is you want to try to understand this biblically and really align yourself with what God's Word says about it. So if, if you end up on the Calvinist side, it's because you, you, you lean in the direction of the interpretation of some of the verses we're going to be looking at from a Calvinist perspective. If you land on the Arminian side, it's, it's, the, other, it's the other way around. But again, for everybody, I would just encourage you, like, look at the text, look at the scripture, be open to hearing what God's word has to say, wrestle with it. It's good to wrestle with it. And don't just, you know, don't just make your decision based on your experience. You know, I think it's good to think about your experience, even as we talk about these things, like think about your own conversion. If you're a believer, think about someone in your life that you've been praying for that isn't yet a believer. I think it's good to think about it in terms of those things. But your, the ultimate decision shouldn't be made just on your experience or your perception of someone else's faith journey. It really should be made on God's Word and what God's Word has to say. That's all. We always have to kind of come back to that, is let's let God's Word speak for itself, and then let's let the chips fall where they may. So, so we got one more. We've talked about total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the P stands for perseverance of the saints. Sometimes there are other, other terms for the P, but um, this, is this is what some people might think of as once saved, always saved. You can't lose your salvation once you get it. That's right. That's, people do think of it like that. So here's the idea from a Calvinist perspective. Got the sovereign God, his work is always going to be fulfilled. His choices will always come to pass. There's nothing that anybody can do can um, overcome what God wants to do. And so the idea is if God has chosen you, he's, he's saved, saved you, regenerated you, then that's a, that's a done deal. Then God has done that. And so if you're truly elect, if you're really been regenerated by God, you're going to continue in that life of faith till the very end. Um, you aren't going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we can't sin, uh, but you'll continue to pursue God until the end of your life. The per other perspective of that is that, is that you, if you could choose at some point to say no. After you've chosen to follow Jesus, then at some point you could also choose to reject Jesus. The idea of perseverance of the saints, neither side, it doesn't have anything to do with you have to live a certain way to retain your salvation. It doesn't have anything to do with like, unless you're worthy all the time, then you're, you're not going to make it. You know, the idea has to do with human choice. It's, it's whether um, if you chose salvation, then you could unchoose it. If you chose to follow Jesus, then you could choose to reject him at certain points. And this is where, you know, we all know people who have, who have been following Jesus, and then one day they're not. And so the question is, why is that? Were they never regenerated in the first place, or did they reject the salvation that they chose initially? Yeah, and that's where we'll, you know, we'll get into those that debate. We'll talk about that um, at the end of this series, in week six of the series, and Ross, it strikes me that perseverance of the saints is just the logical expansion of irresistible grace, that if God's grace is irresistible at the beginning, that you can't resist his call, his effectual call on your life to, to receive 
the sacrifice that Jesus did for you on the cross, then it's if you couldn't resist it at the beginning, then you can't resist it along the way either, because 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 you've been you've been elect, you've been chosen, and um, and so it's kind of like an extension. That's how I view it. It's an extension of irresistible grace, but it does bring up some of those really difficult questions. Like, okay, then how do we? How do we explain someone who appears to not be a believer anymore, and yet they they were five years ago? And we'll get into that whole debate when we get there. Again, this is one that's, man, I've had just many really heated conversations with people about this. And a lot of times you you start asking questions that people have never really thought about, right? And and it comes to then you end up saying, well, I can't make a judgment about someone's salvation. And that's true. And we'll get into all that stuff. But but we're 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 talking about it in in just theological terms, like, is there a proper way to view that biblically? And we'll get into that in the last week of the series. So that's Tulip, Ross. That's that's what we're going to be talking about for the next six weeks. And maybe we should spend a little bit of time on the history of this whole thing. Like, okay, who is this Calvin guy? When did he, when did, when was he born? Why did he come up with this stuff? Was he a jerk? Um, who is Arminius, Jacob Arminius, same thing. And then again, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, someone who lived well before those guys, St. Augustine, and how he figures in, not just how s- scripture figures in. So let's start with John Calvin. This guy was, uh, was a kind of a big figure in the Protestant Reformation. So we're talking about way back in Martin Luther days. Let's talk a little bit about who this guy was. So Calvin, he was an important reformer, came a little bit after Luther. He was born in 1509. He's French, and so um, different people pronounce his, way, his name in different ways, but Calvin's the English way. He, he studied law and classics at the University of Paris, but he, but he later had a religious conversion. You know, this is the Reformation is in response to problems in the Roman Catholic Church and what was the only church, mm-hmm. really, of the, in Europe at the time. And so as people began to read the Bible again and discover Scripture and being to think about that, they, they were having religious conversion, Luther's conversion, others, many other reformers. So Calvin had this religious conversion that, that led him to embrace the Protestantism that was beginning to develop in Europe um, at the time. And then he became, as a leader, he set up um, the church in the city of Geneva, and Geneva became a hotbed of the Reformation, and, and the Protestant church there was established and really began to have a lot of influence in that community. And so he becomes one of the key figures of the Protestant um, Reformation. So for, for Calvin, and some of our listeners who didn't go to seminary might not know about this this work that's pretty famous and pretty massive. It's called the Institutes of Christian Religion. So Calvin's Institutes, Ross, I see, I'm looking at you in your library. Do you have a copy of the Institutes back behind you on the wall in your library? I do not. Yeah. It, I don't know if your shelf, you have a shelf that's strong enough to hold, hold the volumes. It's, that's pretty, it's pretty thick work. And I think a lot of people, you know, encourage people to check that out, but you know, the, the Calvinism, the Institutes is not all about the five points of Calvinism. Some of these things that Calvin is famous for today, it's just a part of the Institutes that he wrote. Yeah, because he talked a lot about the nature of the church. He talked a lot about 
you know, really uh, the role of the church in society, um, and how is the church going to be governed? What is the nature of uh, Christian discipleship? What does it mean to follow Jesus? A lot, a lot of things. He was a he was a prolific thinker and writer, and actually he, he was working on the institutes for his whole life, basically coming out with with volume after volume, and uh, they've been collect, kind of collected now. I guess at, now that he's done, and so it was really his work created the basis for the movement that's now known as Reformed theology. Now, the Reformation covered a lot of different streams of theology, but Reformed, quote-unquote, Reformed theology versus, say, Lutheran theology with Martin Luther versus the Anabaptist movement that was happening in, in the Reformation years as well. His emphasis, as we, you could tell from the tulip, was his emphasis is on uh, the sovereignty of God and, and God's work in human salvation through election. Uh, but, you know, wh- one thing that everyone agrees that Calvin uh, really gave us is this strong belief in the authority of the Bible. He said, look, it's not the church, it's not the Pope. Uh, this was the hallmark of the Reformation, that, that Calvin wanted to build his theology on what the Bible said. And so he really pioneered some of the principles of, of biblical study that, that Protestant theologians still use today. Yeah, and as you said, Geneva, Switzerland is where he lived and did a lot of this work. In fact, he was involved in government in Geneva, so there was a lot of mixture of politics and and faith. Um, again, we're coming out of Catholicism, which was very political as well, and and so you've got all this stuff going on in the Reformation period. And you know his reform, his idea of reform theology was influential. A lot of a lot of people just bought into it. It made sense to them. A lot of a lot of people, a lot of smart people, I'm sure, read his institutes. But you had this guy then that comes along, J- Jacob Arminius, and he is born into this era, right? But he didn't buy into it. He was one of the guys that's like, this didn't, this doesn't strike me as being the right way to view it. And so talk a little bit about this guy, Jacob Arminius. Well, in the terms of the context of that time, it makes sense that there would be this interplay because everybody initially is, re- is rejecting uh, Rome and the authority of the Pope and all the rest and the, and the emphasis in uh, papal Catholicism on uh, tradition instead of scripture. And so Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all these others are trying to rediscover what the Bible has to say. Well, then along comes then the next generation. So Arminius is like 50 years younger than Calvin. And so he's like, there's this next generation that's saying, okay, this work has been done to separate the Protestant Reformation from Rome, well, then the next step is, well, the Protestants need to kind of figure out what their issues are and these other issues that get raised in the conversations that people have. And so Arminius represents that that next generation that is you know, going to own Calvinism or own the Reformation. And so he's known for asking some questions about Calvinist doctrines, asking some questions about predestination and election. And so Arminius um, was probably the first major theologian to really set up a system of thought that maybe was free to wrestle with those questions that Calvin raised or the foundation that that Calvin established. Now he was Calvin 
was French, but he was in Geneva, Switzerland. Arminius was Dutch. The Dutch church uh, was reformed. And eventually Arminius's uh, theories were dis- debated and discussed within the Reformed Church in the Netherlands. So he had this a similar effect of Calvin's kind of setting the tone for uh, another generation of people thinking about those issues. Yeah, so he comes out with the document called the Remonstrance. So he he comes forward. This is this was 1610. So let's go back to Calvin. Calvin died in 1564. So like you said, this is a generate this is the next generation. 1610 Arminius comes out. He outlines the theological views of the remonstrants as opposed to the reformed theologians. And he this document included these five points. Now we talked about tulip. So listen and we'll we'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead, but so he he taught conditional election. He taught unlimited atonement. He did talk about total depravity. He talked about resistible grace and the possibility of apostasy. And Ross, in my studies, I've, I've heard that really the, the five points of Calvinism were more formalized, actually in response to the remonstrance movement. It's not like the tulip, I don't think the tulip existed in that form. It was, I think, coming out of the Synod of Dort is where the Reformed Church said, they came they came with their own perspective on this and it really kind of nailed down tulip which is what we're talking about in the series that's a good observation and this is what you know happens within the the church is that different perspectives come up another perspective comes along and it helps everybody to hopefully hone or to um, better articulate their their original position against that counterpoint and so this is uh this is a, actually it's a healthy thing but Again, that like you said, the Synod of Dort um, re- rejected Arminius and his followers. So that Church of the Netherlands, the Dutch Reformed Church, and it's in a when people immigrated to America, that that they formed some denominations that were rooted in that. Those those people then are still Calvinist, but we see that this controversy allowed both sides to focus their position with more clarity, and so that's kind of Arminius died. Right before the Synod of Dort, just before his remonstrances were were um, presented and 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 um, evaluated, so he didn't really live to see the the full extent of the controversy, and he didn't really live to see you know the formal rejection of his theological ideas. But his views um, continued to be advocated by that that group of people. And they later influenced the development of, of a lot of other um, denominations outside of the Netherlands. And there's, there's branches of Arminianism in all kinds of um, Protestant uh, denominations as well. Okay, so what's, what's a synod, Ross? Uh, we, we're, we've been using that word, the Synod of Dort, which was convened in 1618 and it lasted into 1619. What's a synod? What was that all about? And what what came of that at the end of the day? Like, were they just like, let's all just live happily ever after together. Calvinists can sit on this side of the church, and Arminians can sit on this side of the church. What happened? So a synod is a, is a convention, like we'd call it maybe a convention, where leaders come together, and the people who have the authority in a religious movement um, then make decisions. And so they talk about it, they discuss, they debate the thing, and then they make a decision. So the Synod of Dort actually 
resulted in the condemnation of the Arminian view, the remonstrances. And instead, what happened was the, the synod formulated new statements called canons, the canons of Dort, which upheld the strict Calvinist positions um, in response to the remonstrance positions. And like you said, Arminius actually died before the synods, so he didn't get to see his his perspective on this being labeled as heresy, which maybe was a good thing for him, I don't know. But, you know, in churches today, Ross, uh, I, I would say there's more, I would hope that there's more grace in this area that we're not labeling, that Calvinists aren't labeling Arminians heretics and vice versa. Well, you have to understand the times. That, that people were that were living in back there, you know, the coming out of Catholicism and the whole Reformation, that was like there were some life and death kind of issues. Uh, coming out of re- Catholicism, it was heretical to oppose the Pope, like Luther and Calvin did, and so there was this sense of of the Church having authority that we don't we're not used to today in America, where there's so much um diversity of religious expression and so forth and we're church and state in america church and state are separate but in in that world the church and state were linked together and so um the the leaders of the church had a great deal of authority it became their place or they felt like it was their place to decide what's right and what's wrong and what's true what's not true that's a good thing in a sense you got to have leaders who are willing to stand up for what the bible says but this is an area where I guess in we have the perspective of history and the retrospective view, we realize, oh, that the remonstrances, uh, they had some biblical basis and that both sides are trying to be faithful to Scripture the best way mm-hmm. they know how. Now, it wasn't just Scripture that Calvin and Arminius used to try to understand the proper theological perspective. It was also the writings of someone who came more than a thousand years before them, St. Augustine, born in 354 AD. So here this guy is, I think people have heard of him before, St. Augustine or St. Augustine, depending on how you like to pronounce it. How does he fit in? How do his writings fit in? And and was he a Calvinist or, or an Arminian? I know that's that's not the right way to say it, because they lived way af- long after he lived, but but. How do how do we how does he figure into this whole debate? Well, Augustine is really kind of the patron saint for Calvinists. A lot of Calvinists, especially, will find rooted um, teaching in Augustine. For example, uh, he taught about predestination. That's been foundational. He emphasized the absolute sovereignty of God that God chooses. So all the, some of the parts of the tulip that, that Calvinism teaches were from Augustine. Total depravity. He talks about the importance of grace in salvation. It's irresistible grace. So, so really, uh, he influenced Calvinism considerably. And John Calvin drew heavily on his writings and uh, saw him as like a precursor, as like almost a theological mentor. But Arminianism also draws on Augustine in some other ways, maybe less, maybe less so than Calvinism does. And so Arminianism goes back to Augustine too. He's just a he's a pillar of Christian theology um, that many people have found to be exemplary. And this brings up a good question: how how much should we weigh in human authors like Augustine or 
Calvin or Arminius or John Maxwell or, you know, R.C. Sproul or anyone, any, any modern teacher, ancient teacher that's not the Bible, right? Because it's not scripture. So maybe this is a good way to kind of start to wrap up this topic. Like how much should that even weigh in when we're considering where we stand on this issue? It's helpful to a point because human authors can help us to understand scripture, can point us to, oh, you know, we might inherit an interpretation of a passage and we realize, oh, here's a deeper um, understanding of that passage. Here's some things I never thought of before. If I read this author, can help me to, um, you know, maybe parse what I'm reading or what I'm learning. But you know, I, I don't want—I don't want to be dependent on John Calvin and or on Jacob Arminius or any other or contemporary people who represent those points of view. I want to learn from them and I want to be in dialogue with them. But ultimately, if they can point me to Scripture, I'm going to listen to what they have to say, but ultimately I'm answerable to what God's Word has to say. And really, that's our goal as well. The same thing goes for us. We don't want to be the major influence for our listeners on this topic. We want God's Word to be the major influence, so we're going to try to be faithful in presenting God's Word and, you know, hopefully faithfully representing both sides of this debate over the next several weeks. But Ross, maybe just in the last couple minutes we have here, how do denominations fit into this? Like, why don't we just finish on a kind of a contemporary contemporary overview of denominations that may lean more Calvinist or Arminian for our listeners? It might be helpful for them as they think about some of the churches that they've attended in the past. Every denomination has like a, a family tree. It's rooted in some precursors. And so those who go back to, you know, Calvin and the Dutch Reformed Church and people who were influenced by them. So, for example, John Knox was influenced by Geneva. And so he's a reformer in Scotland. And he started the, the Scottish Church was Calvinist. And that became uh, basically the Presbyterians for us today. Historically, that's the flow of the Presbyterians. The churches from the Netherlands that came into the U.S. Uh, during immigration would be like the Christian Reformed Church and uh, Reformed Church in America. And so they're, they tend to be you know, Calvinistic for sure. So people, churches and denominations that use the title Reformed, then they're typically going to be Calvinistic. There's a lot of um, Southern Baptists. Baptists have never have different roots, different heritage, but a lot of Baptists are Reformed or Calvinistic. And so sometimes they're called uh, Particular Baptists because they believe in particular salvation. There's terminology that we don't understand today that meant something for them back in the day. Um, and so on the Armenian side, then... The influence of Arminius had a lot of uh, he had a lot of followers that spread around. It spread in different ways. One of the ways it spread was uh, through John Wesley, as he interacted with the Moravians, and they shaped a lot of his thinking. And so the denominations and groups that are in the Wesleyan family tree tend to be Arminian. So that would include. Uh, Methodists, it would include the whole, what we call the Holiness Movement, the Nazarene Church, and others like that from that time frame. And then out of that, a big part of that uh, family tree is the, is the Pentecostal uh, denominations, Assembly of God, and so forth. Also, um, not related to the Pentecostals, but the Christian Church Movement 
churches of Christ and Christian churches tend to be, in my experience anyway, um, now a lot of them don't have statements of faith. Um, no creed but Christ is their thing. But a lot of them, in my experience, tend to be Arminian in their approach. And so, you know, we're going to see lots of representatives of both of these perspectives in American religious cultural life. Well, the series is called Calvinism versus Arminianism. It's six weeks long. This is just lesson one. If you want to find the entire series, talk about it with your family, your small group, your mentor. We've got discussion questions, summaries, these podcast episodes. You can find all of it at our Faith and Life category page, pursuegod.org forward slash faith. And we encourage you to go through this with some folks, open up your Bibles, and see where you land on the topic. We'll see you next week. Hey listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we want to make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit PursueGod.org forward slash donate.